Five. Into the storm. June eighteenth, two thousand twenty-three. Dear Dad, I've always hated window seats on airplanes. Okay, they aren't quite as craptastic as middle seats, but you're still pretty squished in there, like a sandwich at the bottom of a lunchbox. The only bright side of a window seat is that you don't have to get up whenever someone in your row has to take a piss. Today, however, suffering the window seat was worth every cramped second of it. I didn't time exactly how long our jet skirted the coasts of British Columbia and Southeast Alaska, and I'm not sure I could have. Every stopwatch in the world would have held its breath with me as I gazed down on a timeless world where towering emerald mountains meet and kiss the sea. Behind these, like aging parents standing at attention for their marrying children, were the white heads of the coastal Rockies' dominant peaks. More beauty hides down there than one person could see up close in a lifetime, but from six miles up in the air, I can mine their treasures in only a couple hours. By the time my Alaska Airlines flight landed in Anchorage, a sagging, exhausted sensation was creeping over me. I had been in the air for over five hours, but due to multiple time changes, it was barely one o'clock. Since Franco's plane wasn't supposed to touch down until after six sharp, I hailed a taxi to drive me to my hotel. No sooner had the vehicle left the airport loop than we found our roadway blocked by a behemoth bull moose. That woke me up. I'm definitely in Alaska. The red-headed cabbie, taking stock of my gaping jaw and saucer-sized eyeballs, wheezed a throaty smoker's laugh and said, Know what we call that here? What? I naively replied. A Sunday afternoon, he said, and followed his own pathetic punchline with a hearty belly laugh. Never been to Alaska before, have ya? Nope, first time. Based on that spiffy blue backpack of yours, I'm guessing you're here for pleasure, not business, he asserted, scratching his scraggly salt and paprika beard. Where are you headed? Denali, I said, gonna spend a few days in the backcountry there. By yourself? He asked the question as if I were a crazy woman. No, no, I assured him. My friend is meeting me here. Ah, got it. The taxi went silent for a minute as the moose left and my driver navigated us toward downtown Anchorage. From my vantage point, Alaska's most populated city appeared only marginally larger than Cheyenne. There were a few taller buildings congregated together, but nothing higher than a handful of stories. When you leaving? For Denali? The cab driver asked, breaking the quiet again. Tomorrow morning, I answered, renting a car and driving up. He grunted with what I took to be disapproval, then cautioned, Might want to wait a few days. We're supposed to get some wicked weather sweeping down from the north. You don't want to get caught out in the backcountry with that mess. Thanks for the tip, I exclaimed politely, though I had no intention, and still have none, of postponing. After all, I have my certified mountain ranger coming along to keep me safe and sound. Speaking of Franco, his flight arrived an hour later than expected. 
I had been sitting in front of the hotel TV, impatiently watching Everybody Loves Raymond reruns, when he texted to let me know that wheels were on the tarmac. An annoying flutter of anticipation began winging about my stomach. I immediately told the butterflies inside me to calm down, but as tummy butterflies are prone to do, they didn't listen one damn bit. Franco's next text read, I will pick up rental car and meet you at hotel. Good? He's 27. Much cheaper if the rental car is under his name. Perfect, I wrote back. We can find dinner and shop for our hiking supplies. See you soon! I spent the next few minutes in front of the bathroom mirror, trying to turn my hair and makeupless face into something more presentable. When I was still far from satisfied, I gave up and returned to the TV. But my mind was miles away from the Barone family arguing on the screen. My upcoming meeting with Franco occupied every cell and synapse in my brain. What would I say to Franco when I saw him? What would he say to me? Should I hug him? If so, for how long? Handshake? Hell no, not a handshake. Play it cool? Or admit how happy I was to see him in person again? I sent another mental message to my squirming stomach. I think giant eels had eaten the butterflies and were now its new residents telling it to settle the hell down. Its streak of rebellion continued, apparently unfazed by my will. The next text from Franco didn't come until a full episode later. Long line at the rental kiosk, leaving now. Yet another period of strained waiting. At least the company changed. The Heffernan family from King of Queens had replaced Raymond. Checking in, Franco informed by text near the end of the first episode. What is your room number? I told him. Perfecto. I will come down after shower and change. Well, it was damn near 8.30 by the time that turd finally knocked. Forget hugging him or telling him how glad I was to see him. I wanted nothing more than to punch him for making me wait that long. Nevertheless, I opened the door, and there he was. The same cockeyed grin, the same wavy espresso hair, the same chocolate fondue eyes gazing down at me. The only difference between Torres Franco and Alaska Franco is that he, wisely, scraped off the scraggly beard. Much more handsome this way, if you ask me. Franco stepped into my room, and then into me. He wrapped his arms around my back and held me against himself in a firm hug. In that moment, the eels residing in my stomach wriggled right up into my chest. I feared where they might move next. It is good to see you again, Kate, he said quietly, hesitantly, as he stepped back. First he's late, then he steals my move and my line? Super turd! But honestly, all I felt was happiness. Good to see you too, Franco, I replied. Want to go get dinner? I'm starving. Absolutely, he exclaimed. I have not eaten in days, I feel. Even though it was nearing nine o'clock, the sun remained in suspension above the horizon. 
A chilly, salted breeze ruffled over hair and clothing as we left our hotel and explored downtown Anchorage, hoping to spy out an eatery which would suit our raging appetites. We made small talk as we strolled. How was the flight? I love this weather. Anything would be fine for dinner, but I do love seafood. Wonder where there's a decent grocery store around here to find our backpacking supplies. Even though the conversation could only be called entirely unstimulating by an outside observer, I was content, at complete ease with him. I'm not always the greatest judge of what another person is thinking, but I'd gamble that he felt the same. We finally settled on some brew house. Can't remember the name right now, but it provided me with some outstanding ahi tuna. I insisted on paying, and not just for dinner, but for the entire trip. You left me so much, Dad, that generosity comes to me quite easily now. Once dinner was finished, we returned to the hotel and took the rental car to Fred Meyer, which is basically a grocery store with a dash of Walmart added to the recipe. Here we bought mostly food, lots of noodle and rice dishes, which Franco says are light to carry and easy to cook, as well as granola bars, oatmeal for breakfast, and other snacky goodies for the in-between hours. We also picked up fuel for your gas stove fresh first aid equipment, and a few other odds and ends. When Franco was satisfied our haul would sustain a three- to four-day backcountry trip, he pushed our cart to the checkout lane. Here was where he insisted on paying, and he wouldn't take no for an answer. I must contribute something, Kate, he insisted. Consider it my way of buying into your father's special trip. Like that chocolate in his eyes, I almost melted. Back at the hotel, we said goodnight. He went to his room. I went to mine. Here I am now. It's past midnight. I wasn't even going to write to you. I just wanted to go to sleep. But right now, that seems as impossible as a telepathic unicorn winning the lottery. I think I get excited too easily. It's a disease. We're supposed to leave after hotel breakfast around 7.30, but if this whole insomnia thing keeps up, I might have to push back that timetable an hour or two. Maybe there's something decent on TV that'll put me under. Anyway, I'll keep you updated as we make our way to Denali and then to Anderson Pass. God willing, that's where I'll be sleeping two nights from now. Love, your insomniac, little girl. Kate. June 19th, 2023. Dear Dad, I'm not sure which opening line is best for today's report, so I'll let you choose between my top two. One, what the hell have you gotten me into? Or two, I wasn't even this cold above the Arctic Circle in January. Maybe I should give you some context before you choose. The day started out a touch later than expected. At the time, I figured it was no big deal. As it turns out, leaving Anchorage an hour later than planned was but the first tiny snowball sent rolling down a steep hill. 
The drive north, as you're already aware, offered me and Franco one gorgeous vista after another. Even though I looked up our route beforehand, I can't believe how desolate the world is here. In a way, the drive to Denali reminded me sharply of the Patagonian wilds. Once past the town of Wasilla, there are about three gas stations, 250 miles of potholed pavement, 50,000 mountains, and 50 billion trees. Yet in the desolation, there also lives a beauty, unlike anything built by humankind. What we sweat and strive together to create, nature surpasses without ever thinking about its labor. And that's about where my positivity comes to an end. By the time we arrived at Denali National Park Visitor Center, we were already pushing one o'clock in the afternoon. The ranger, who was supposed to be manning the backcountry office, wasn't there when we showed up. Something about a bear management situation? Which meant we couldn't get the proper permits for backcountry camping until later. No big deal, right? But the snowball rolls on, gaining both speed and size. Shortly before three in the afternoon, the ranger returned. He explained to us the backcountry unit system, how the whole park is divided up into numbered zones. Each of those units, then, accommodates a certain number of campers per night. I'm sure you're already familiar with the system, but just in case it's changed since the early 2000s, now you know. Fortunately, the units leading to Anderson Pass still had their vacancy signs illuminated. Once we had watched the mandatory safety video for backcountry campers, the rangers signed our permits. We had planned to begin our hike right where you told me, at the Mount Isleson Visitor Center, some 60 miles into the park. But Ranger Rick, yes, that was actually his name, convinced us that a launch point from Grassy Pass, only a short distance beyond, would trim away a good hour of hiking. Our next job was to buy tickets for the shuttle. Since you can't drive personal vehicles very far down the park road, we had no choice but to ride the bus to our drop-off point. Unfortunately, when we arrived at the ticketing desk, we discovered that every bus seat was sold out until 4.30. Fortunately, this is the land of the midnight sun, right? No big deal. Sure, we wouldn't arrive at our drop-off location until later in the evening, but Franco and I still believed everything would be fine and dandy. So we hung out. We talked. We played cards. We talked some more. I called Mom with his phone because mine was dead, then counted all the different ways one person could tell another to be careful. And finally, we got on the shuttle and left. When the rain began at 9.15, we were still on board that shuttle. It wasn't an all-out downpour or anything. Rather, it was one of those lazy, chilled drizzles that's somehow worse than torrential rains. Fat, gray clouds hung over our heads, so near we could almost touch them. That was still the prevailing weather when our shuttle operator stopped at Grassy Pass, a short distance past the Isleson Visitor Center, to let us off. Then, with a snappy goodbye, he closed the door and sped away quickly disappearing behind the rain veil. I'll summarize the subsequent details, 
because I think I'm finally warm enough to fall asleep. First, we descended down 500 feet of scree. You know, the steep slope of loose stones practically designed to roll ankles. Next came two miles across the gray, graveled flats of the many-braided thoroughfare river. As a special treat, this section included five bridgeless river crossings through 32.1 degree glacial meltwater. We're lucky the drizzle hadn't dropped enough moisture to swell those streams, or else we would have been royally screwed. By the time we finally traversed the wide riverbed, midnight had already come and gone, and we still hadn't crossed inside the boundaries of our permitted camping unit. That relief would only belong to us after another hour of hiking south along Glacier Creek, a meager waterway pinned between the imposing Mount Isleson on one side and low hills of glacial moraine on the other. Once Franco determined that we had crossed the proper zone's boundary, we found a flat deposit of glacial silt, threw our tents together in silence, stowed our bear-proof food container a good distance away. As you're well aware, you don't want to attract 500-pound grizzlies into your sleeping quarters, and crawled inside our damp sleeping bags. We are both hungry, but sleep is winning out tonight. Dinner will have to wait until breakfast. That's how exhausted and cold and miserable we are. Dad, this next letter of yours better be a frickin' Newberry Medal winner, or else I might give up looking for the rest of them. I mean it. Love your food and sleep-starved, little girl, Kate. June 20th, 2023 Dear Dad, Franco woke me up this morning, frantic with excitement. Something more must have gone wrong. I was certain of it. Surely some clever critter had figured out how to pick the locks on our bear-proof canister and eaten all our food. Or, perhaps, an army of irate grizzlies was descending upon us from the higher slopes surrounding our camp, ravenous and craving human flesh. What is it? I cried back to him, my panicked mind groping desperately through the fog of sleep and lingering fatigue. Just come out here, he pleaded. You, you must see this, Kate. Abundant sunshine and crisp dewy air cascaded upon my bare face as I stuck my head out from the road-stripe yellow tent. Above me loomed the hulking shadow of what I knew must be Mount Isleson. The nasty weather my cabbie warned me about had now passed. When it came and went, it had apparently scrubbed away with it everything impure or dull or ugly. Now, only the pristine loveliness of untouched Alaska remained. But Franco was uninterested in what had captivated my attention. Already, he was walking westward, toward the grassy, low-lying mounds of glacial upheaval, heather green and boulder-strewn. Over his shoulder he called, Not that. Follow me. After a quick wrestling match with my North Face fleece, I crammed my sore and blistered feet into the damp hiking boots I'd left overnight beneath the tent's rainfly. Without even bothering to lace up, I stumbled out and after Franco, who was scrambling up the steep hill. 
Once on top, he stopped next to a Buick-sized boulder and leaned against it. I, too, crested the high mound. There, my heart caught in my throat. Spread out before us, stretching for countless miles, was a tapestry so magnificent God himself would be blessed to hang it in his throne room. Threads of glaciers, rivers frozen in time, were woven among mountains blue and purple and green and orange. And, enthroned above it all, the radiant crown which not a cloud dared obscure, stood the King of Kings among all North America's mighty peaks. Denali itself, surrounded by the lesser spires of the Alaska Range. A royal court, bowing low before its ruler. Incredible, murmured Franco, utterly transfixed. Several minutes we stood, silent, but for our breathing in and out. Then, unexpectedly, Franco slipped a hand around my shoulder and pulled me into his side. My exhilaration, already formidable, was suddenly big as Denali itself. I allowed myself to lean into him, and there we stood, an improbable pair brought together through an unusual series of events. Events set in motion by you, Dad. For those brief moments, at least, the world was right. They were also the moments when I realized, without a doubt, that I was in love with Franco. Not even the stars of heaven or the bedrock beneath my feet were as substantial as this epiphany. It slammed into me with all the force of a semi-truck barreling into a butterfly. I sucked in new breath, deeper and sweeter, then again and again, as if I'd lived in a cave my whole life and were being introduced to fresh air for the first time. Everything, my world, my entire existence, had just changed forever. Until now, I've always found creepy the popular idea that girls fall for guys like their dads. In Franco's case, though, I begrudgingly have to admit it might be true. Like you, he has an unquenchable thirst for adventure. He's introspective and genuine. He speaks to me the way you write to me, as if I'm the only thing in the world that matters. Even beyond the direct similarities I see between the two of you, Franco is passionate and funny. He loves to laugh and is nearly always smiling. He cares about our Earth, both for its wild wonders and for the people who walk it. In short, there's very little not to love, so I would be crazy to feel differently. Damn it, Emma. I hate it when you're right. I know. It was quick, especially after all the Andrew stuff that went down only a few months ago. But I also know it is real. I don't know how I know, only that I do. And that, I suppose, is enough. I have no sense of how long we stood together, eyes feasting on the captivating beauty which encompassed us. The stream of time, in places like that, has a way of flowing differently. On its silvery waters, a minute might be an hour, and an hour a minute. Whichever it was, I do not know. All I know is that the power of Denali, and of Franco, and of life, held us rooted there in silence, 
magnetized both to the earth and to each other. Eventually, the rumblings of an even more powerful force, our undinnered and unbreakfasted stomachs, tore us away from the image, and we descended back down the glacial moraine to our tents. A quiet breakfast of instant oatmeal followed. We chit-chatted about the misery of the previous night and counted our blessings that, today, by all appearances, would be more agreeable. We broke down our tents, replaced our gear snugly into our backpacks, and continued south along the creek. Our bodies, still in recovery mode, needed lunch after only an hour or so of hiking. As we ate granola bars and trail mix, our mealtime entertainment arrived in the form of a wolverine pair scuffling upon a nearby slope. Whether they were playing or fighting, we'll never know. After a few minutes, the duo scuttled over the ridge and out of sight. Throughout the early part of the afternoon, we hiked onward. The further we went, the fiercer the winds swooping down from the higher elevations became. Eventually, around three o'clock, we arrived at the terminus of a gently sloping creek bed. Towering ahead now was the steep climb up Anderson Pass. The winds, continuing only to grow stronger, launched gales of dust and even tiny stones into our faces, a million minuscule missiles assaulting us in waves of ceaseless barrage. I do not think we should try to climb today, Franco opined after we set down our packs for what I assumed was only a break. The wind and sand will blind us before we reach the pass. Things will probably be calmer in the morning. As excited as I am to read your letter, I didn't hate his suggestion. The idea of a relaxed evening, spent exploring the terrain around us, appealed to me. The lunchtime Wolverine wrestling match had sparked the fires of curiosity within me, and I wondered what other wildlife encounters we might enjoy if we stayed put for a while. Since it's been too blustery to set up our tents thus far, I decided I'd write to you a little earlier than usual. Right now I'm sitting, all alone, in the lee of a boulder on the hillside. Even though a curtain of clouds has veiled the glory of Denali, much of this morning's topographical tapestry remains spread before me. I have no idea where Franco wandered off, but it doesn't matter. I like that we can enjoy our own adventures beyond the reach of each other's shadows. You know, last night I wanted to kill you dead all over again. I was miserable and cold and ready to throw in the towel. I'm glad I pushed on. I'm glad your letters keep pushing me on. Because if I had given up anywhere along the way, or if you had given up during your last days, the course of my life would never have included this. Though I may have never known what was missing, my heart would have always carried within it a Denali-sized hole. And that's a pretty damn big piece. I'm glad I got to fill it today. All right, better go down to start dinner and set up camp. In the morning we climb, and if all goes well, I'll have your letter filling another piece of my heart by this time tomorrow. Love, your completely content little girl, Kate. 
July 9th, 2003. Dear Kate, Here is where it all began. In a way, I have this place to thank for my whole life. I had just graduated high school when I came to Alaska the first time. Both my parents were still alive then. We lived in the university town of Manhattan, Kansas, where your grandparents were professors at Kansas State. Go Wildcats! An impressive feat given the fact both of them were tenured there before the age of 40. During the course of my final high school semester, a trio of baseball friends and I decided to travel to Alaska for a week of fishing and sightseeing. As graduation drew nearer, however, they all dropped out one by one. Jimmy cited money as the reason he couldn't go. Carl had to work. Dom blamed his controlling girlfriend, who wouldn't let him leave her for such a long time. I never was one to let others ruin my fun just because they decided to be lame idiots, so I decided to visit Alaska on my own. My parents weren't the adventurous, live-outside-the-box types themselves, but they almost always supported even my craziest decisions, regardless of whether said decisions weren't thought out very well. Long story short, my final plan for the trip led me here, to Denali. It wasn't just my first solo backpacking trip. It was my first backpacking trip, period. And I had chosen for my inaugural expedition the many grizzlied, trailless, bridge-free wilderness of a park the size of Massachusetts. It was intimidating. It was tough. At times, it was downright miserable. It was beautiful. It was inspiring. It was wild. Suddenly, my entire previous life felt sheltered, even tame by comparison. I had grown up a domesticated lapdog. A wolf is what I became on that trip. It was here, atop Anderson Pass, on a cloudless, crisp, magnificent morning, when my greatest epiphany struck me. I saw in a moment what I would do for the rest of my life. Travel than write about those travels. I would become friend to both the wild places of the world and its teeming cities. Like a snake sheds its skin, I would shrug off my groomed, comfortable life and adopt the wandering way of the wolf. When I returned home to Kansas, I changed nearly every plan I had made. It only took a week to withdraw my college enrollment pack my well-bruised Oldsmobile Forenza, and leave Manhattan. Was it risky? Absolutely. Uncertain? You bet. Did the decision piss off my parents? Royally. Even the most supportive ones have their limits. It was also one of the bravest, boldest, and best decisions of my entire life. Pursuing my passion rather than settling for a relatively riskless career in an office was, perhaps, the defining moment of my entire existence. For months, I explored as much of our country as I could find. When I wanted nature, I camped among the redwoods of California or the saguaros of Arizona. When I wanted company, I meandered San Antonio's Riverwalk or Beale Street in Memphis. I studied. I read. 
I learned, and I wrote. Everything I saw, everything I experienced, I inked into my journals. Before too long, my freelance pieces began appearing in periodicals and magazines. The money wasn't great in the beginning, but it kept me moving. I was hungry sometimes, but I didn't care. I was happy. I was alive. Kate, my daughter, my chubby, cuddly, crack-me-up daughter, examine your heart. What path are you on? What road are you following, and toward what horizon? If you continue in that direction, where will you end up? Who will you become? Someone you love? Someone you admire? Or someone you're ashamed to see staring back at you in the mirror? I have no way of discovering which passions will overtake your beating heart, or what work you will consider worth doing. But whatever they are, whatever it is you most believe will give you purpose, whatever will rouse you from bed in the morning, filled with excitement to greet each new day, I pray with all my heart you spend your life doing exactly that and settling for nothing less. That's how you live wild. That's how you live free. This world already has far too many in its domesticated herds. They wander through their bucolic motions each day, safe behind their fences, lazily meandering through the same pastures. They are people existing as hollow shells and faint shadows of what they might have been had they but broken down those fences of their own making to seize what lay beyond. Your data wants better for you than that kind of soul-killing existence. So live wild, Kate. Live free. I so wish I could be there to help guide you along your way. But I'm not. And that means it is up to you. Find what sets your heart ablaze and put your ass to work building one hell of a bonfire. By the time you finish reading these words of mine, you will have reached the halfway point of my adventures for you. I wish, of course, there could be a thousand left. There's so much more I want to say, so many corners of my heart I wish I could show you. Time, though, is waning, as is my energy. They are the wax and wick of a candle. And here, at the twilight of my day, I am quickly spending both with my brightly burning flame. Yet somehow I am certain. I'll find the strength required to finish what I started. Only this time it won't be my passion for travel or writing pressing me onward, sustaining me to accomplish what I set out to do. Now I have an even greater passion driving me toward the finish line. I have you, Kate. And that means I will have all the strength I need. I love you now and always. Dad. Your next destination should pair nicely with this one, as long as you have the time. From Alaska, you'll travel south along the Pacific coast to Washington. Here you will find Rialto Beach. It isn't one of the gaudy, bikini-sprinkled, sandy shores you're probably familiar with, but one whose polychronic floor is paved with sea-polished stones. The bleached bones of giant Sitka spruce trees litter its landscape like the inside of a dragon's cave. The beach lies west of Forks, Washington. When you arrive there, 
Make your way north along the coast, but not too far. Perhaps a half mile up the beach, a trio of massive logs forms a sort of leaning teepee at the edge of the forest. They are so large and lodged in place that I doubt whether they'll have moved, not even twenty years from now. Using those logs as your starting point, walk directly into the woods about thirty feet. There you'll find a triangular, moss-covered boulder, a four-foot-tall wedge of petrified cake. Directly below the point of that cake rock is where you need to dig. If you burrow far enough, you'll find another lockbox, just like the one at your grandparents and the one I am about to bury here at Anderson Pass. As was the case with this one, you won't need a key to open it. In case you're having trouble finding it, or if my landmarks aren't where I left them, use the GPS coordinates listed on the back side of this page. Do me one favor. Read the letter at sunset. Be safe and happy hunting. P.S. If you have some extra time, check out the tide pools near the sea stacks here. Anemones and starfish and urchins galore. It's pretty wild. June 21st, 2023. Dear Dad, Did you have a theme in mind whilst organizing the locations of your scavenger hunt? If so, was that theme word cold? Today is the summer solstice, the longest day of the entire year. I'd been looking quite forward to it, ready to watch the sun swing around the sky without setting until well after midnight. Now I'm just trying to survive the day. Literally. Remember when my cab driver warned me about a front of nasty weather moving down from the north? I assumed that's what hit us a couple nights ago when we began our backpacking trip. I figured the clear skies yesterday morning meant that we also were in the clear. I couldn't have been more wrong. This morning, we woke up to much the same conditions as last night. The wind, however, had shifted at some point, so that it was blowing steadily from the north. None of this raised any alarms for either me or Franco. If anything, the herd of caribou meandering lazily by as I unzipped my tent door that morning came as an encouragement, an auspicious forecasting of a dazzling day in Denali. We ate, we packed, we commenced our arduous trudge up the slopes toward the pass. Within an hour, the azure canopy overhead had turned the color of campfire ash. The wind grew swifter and steadier and colder, the temperature plummeting harder than Lindsay Lohan's career. A darkness, unnatural for the time of day, settled over the sun until it was extinguished like a candle beneath a snuffer. Do you think we should turn back? I shouted to Franco above the gale. He shook his head. We are closer to the top than to the bottom, he explained. Once there, we can set up our tents and weather the storm. I also do not think we want to be near the creek bed if it starts to flood. I was worried we wouldn't gain the pass before the rain began, but our luck held a little longer. Shortly past noon, and still dry, we scaled the slope's final ascent and seized the broad saddle of Anderson Pass.
Without hesitating to rest or rehydrate, we put up our tents and staked them into the rocky earth as best we could, taking care to weigh down the interior corners with stones and items from our packs. Since there was no precipitation yet, I went to work, hunting for the circular array of stones you mentioned in your letter. Less than three minutes later, I found the landmark. It appeared untouched, two decades old since its creation. I dug down with my poop hole shovel, because what the hell else am I going to call the shovel I use to bury my own crap? A minute later, I was scraping metal. To me, it was pay dirt. Hurry inside, I heard Franco call above the storm. I see the line of rain coming at us. With all the urgency of a hunted gopher, I excavated the box. Once it was liberated from its long imprisonment, I tucked it beneath my arm, ran back to my tent, and zipped the door shut literal seconds before the deluge began its furious knocking. Panting from the frenzied efforts of the last few minutes, I finally let myself rest. Only once my breathing had slowed did I finally move the lockbox from armpit to lap. I wiped the caked dirt away from the latch and opened it. Sealed carefully against the elements, in quadruple Ziploc bags, was your letter, now seeing the light of day for the first time in twenty years. I read it. I read it again. And then a third time. I give it a B+. Definitely not the Newberry winner I was hoping for. Living wild like a wolf, following paths and roads. Heart like a bonfire. Pick a damn metaphor and stick with it, Dad. Geez, weren't you supposed to be a professional writer? Maybe I'm just a bit cranky with you right now. After all, as I write this, I'm beginning to wonder if it'll be my last letter to you. You see, the rain didn't stay rain very long. About a half hour after starting, it turned to snow. Every ten minutes for the last four hours, Franco and I have been clearing our tent roofs so the snow doesn't cave them in and crush us. A wall five inches deep has already piled up around the tent bases, and the skies show no signs of relenting. We are under siege, holed up in our flimsy castles, cut off from retreat, and praying our old ally the sun shows up to drive the enemy away. Maybe this was your idea all along. Lure me here, capture me, kill me. Then I'll join you up there and you won't be all alone anymore. A clever, meticulously executed plan, Dad. Well, let me tell you something. I love you, but I'm not ready to die. I'm not ready to be with you yet. So you're gonna have to wait a while. Please? If you're on good terms with whoever has the power to turn on and off the weather, maybe you could put in a little plea for me and Franco. Time to clear off the tent again. I do hope this won't be my final letter to you. Love, your never-been-scareder little girl, Kate. June 25th, 2023 Dear Dad, thanks for all the help. After I last wrote you, 
the world only sank deeper into the dark and cold and snow. The condensation inside our tents started to freeze. The frost settled down into our sleeping bags, and then into our bodies. We were eventually so cold that Franco joined me in my smaller tent. Once our sleeping bags were zipped together, we could at least share our warmth, like hibernating bears. For over a day we lived like this, taking turns dozing because he was worried if we both nodded off, the snow would flatten the tent and suffocate us. What should we do? I asked at one point through chattering teeth. The ubiquitous gray shroud spreading from end to end of the sky made it impossible to tell the time of day. Franco pulled me more tightly against himself and said, We pray and we wait. You don't think we should leave? Try to get back to that visitor center? I sensed him shaking his head. No, he said. That would be even more dangerous than staying put. This blizzard cannot last forever. Soon it will warm up, and we will be safe to travel then. What if it doesn't? I asked. My cynical side, now the exclusive voice within me. I would not leave here, he reiterated, unless it were a clear difference between life and death. We talked, of course, as we waited. Perhaps weakened by cold and hunger, I finally divulged to him the whole dramatic tale of me and Andrew. He, in turn, shared tales of the Patagonian wilds and interesting or famous travelers he had met there. We both unveiled dreams we had for the future, where we saw ourselves in five years and in ten. When we weren't talking, we slept in shifts. My fingers were too numb to write, so I read. On and on the hours dragged. The dull light eventually succumbing to night's shade for a brief time, only for the dull light to return shortly thereafter. As disastrous as our trip had already been, disaster was but beginning to bear its bloodthirsty teeth. In the early morning of the blizzard's third day, it went for the jugular. Our stomachs were empty. We hadn't eaten since lunchtime the day before. So Franco volunteered to fetch the bearproof food container stashed a short distance from our tents. After bundling himself and all the clothes he'd brought, he set out to retrieve it from the foot of the rock where it was stored. Five minutes passed. Then ten. Maybe more. I think I dozed off. But Franco didn't come back. I called out to him praying harder than Jonah and the whale, not so much for his safety, but so that I wouldn't have to leave my marginally warmer sleeping bag to peek outside. He didn't answer. When I finally worked up the willpower to emerge from my synthetic cocoon, I learned why. About a hundred feet away, next to our food storage boulder, and already partially buried under the wet snow, a body lay flat on the ground. Usain Bolt couldn't have run faster than I did, shoeless through the snow. Heaving myself down beside him, I grabbed his shoulders and shook. A soft moan escaped his purple lips and sent a wave of relief crashing over me. As with any wave, though, it promptly retreated, leaving only bare panic behind. There, blossoming in the snow beneath his head, 
was a crimson bloom of blood. My best guess is that he slipped backward upon reaching the food canister and that his fall was broken by an ice-glazed stone. So was the back of his skull. I don't know how I managed to drag him back inside the tent. I must have channeled my inner Schwarzenegger or something, like those moms who lift cars off their trapped babies. Anyway, I wrapped him tightly against myself in the sleeping bag, willing what little warmth I possessed out of my body and into his. Fortunately, he hadn't been immersed in the elements too long. His own body heat returned slowly but fully. The real problem, I then realized, wasn't hypothermia. It was his head. Concussion? Definitely. Blood loss? Duh. Fractured skull and swelling around the brain? Likely. I'm no nurse, but flashes of first aid training from my high school lifeguarding days revisited me. After practically ripping a zipper off your backpack, I retrieved your first aid kit and tore it open. Inside, I located a gauze wrap. Propping him into a semi-seated position against his backpack was small potatoes compared to dragging him through the snow. Now, with better access to his head, I was able to wrap a firm compress around his skull. Sure, a true nurse would probably laugh at my handiwork, but it was the best I could provide under the circumstances. I decided next to give him something for the pain. In the emergency kit, I located a foil packet containing an individual serving of aspirin. Unsure if he would swallow in his catatonia, and not wanting him to choke, I placed the pair of tablets on his tongue and splashed them with a capful of water. To my immense relief, Franco's reflexes took over and he swallowed the pills. My relief was once again short-lived. Seconds later, it was engulfed by terror. In my haste, I hadn't been thinking very deliberately. If I'd maintained control over my wits, I might have remembered that aspirin is a blood thinner. I had just given a profusely bleeding man pills that would make his bleeding even worse. Franco's life was placed in my hands, and instead of saving him, I had pulled the lever to drop the guillotine. I weighed my options, but not for long. There was only one road remaining at that point. Franco had told me he wouldn't leave the tent to hike back unless it might mean the difference between life and death. In my previous letter, I told you I thought I might die. When I left that tent with nothing warmer than a North Face fleece and windbreaker, death seemed like a guarantee. But I couldn't lie there and do nothing while Franco bled out or his brain hemorrhaged. I couldn't cradle his limp body in my arms and merely hope my colossal screw-up wouldn't kill him. The situation required action, so action was what I gave it. I'm pretty sure I caught sight of the Grim Reaper trailing after me as I half-stumbled, half-slipped my way down the vertical quarter-mile from Anderson Pass. Mere minutes into my solo expedition, I was 90% certain my toes were either frozen solid or had gone missing entirely. 
At the same time, a strangely warm pain in my nose and fingers made me wonder if the wind and snow were, in fact, laced with acid. Mercifully, by the time I reached the lower altitudes of Glacier Creek's riverbed, the gale had slackened into a steady breeze. There was also less snow and ice here, which meant I could move at a turtle's pace instead of a snail's. Every sense of time abandoned me as I crept steadily northward toward the park road and the Mount Isleson Visitor Center. I was conscious only of a driving and desperate need to exhaust every last calorie of energy I possessed. Streams crossed my path, and I plodded through without even stopping to assess their risk. When I finally did encounter a grizzly, I gave it a wide berth and tramped on, unfazed. And, hours later, when my jelly legs needed to carry me six hundred feet up a steep slope, I didn't miss a beat until I was at the top and staring straight ahead at the visitor center. The logical part of me has no explanation whatsoever for how I managed to finish that journey from Anderson Pass. My clothing was woefully inadequate, my stomach queasy with emptiness, and my body already half-frozen when I began it. And yet, despite reason's inability to explain why I'm not dead in the snow, I know the answer. I know exactly what kept me going. It was my passion. It was Franco. Just as your love for me, Dad, pushed you to finish the scavenger hunt, my love for Franco is what kept me driving forward through the storm, even when forward no longer seemed possible. And as I stumbled toward the visitor center, shouting for help, I understood that my own life was inseparably bound to the one hanging in the balance on Anderson Pass. If I were going to live, truly live, the way you described in your letter, it meant Franco had to live also. For a short moment, when I reached the building's front entrance, I felt that life slip from my grasp. The doors were closed, locked. A handwritten sign I hadn't seen previously informed me that the building was closed due to weather. For a fraction of a moment, the emptiness of abject despair, magnified by my physical exhaustion, almost swallowed me down into oblivion. Then I heard a voice, the gruff tones of a green and khaki-clad angel shouting, What's going on? What's wrong? Well, it turns out there is a small ranger dormitory located around the west side of the visitor center. From within it, somehow, in some miraculous way, a lone park serviceman heard my pleas over the howling wind. He brought me inside. He heard my frantic story. He radioed for help. The helicopter pilot I spoke with late last night told me it was the worst weather he's ever flown in. More than once, he felt certain everyone on board had punched their one-way tickets to the afterlife. But they made it to Anderson Pass and found Franco. He was in worse shape than when I'd left him, but alive. They airlifted him to a medical clinic in Healy, just north of the park's main entrance. Because I was unable to travel via the snow-covered road, 
all I could do was sit in agony and wait for news. Shortly before midnight, Ranger Doug and I finally received that news. Franco had survived. He was still under intensive care, but doctors said his condition was stable. Less than a minute later, I was asleep. The reward for my bravery and bitter labor was the deepest slumber of my entire life. Waves of unadulterated peace washed my weary mind of all its worry. I awakened the next morning to clearing skies and only the faintest of breezes. Because of the sheer amount of snow covering the park road, however, I wasn't able to leave until the following day. Ranger Doug, snowbound as well, was kind enough, between his long stints of clearing and salting the walkways, to provide me with the periodic updates he received about Franco. Meanwhile, I sat contentedly and lazily in the Ranger dormitory, simultaneously watching normal colors returning to my mildly frostbitten fingers and Doug's Cheers DVDs. That evening, after a dinner of hot dogs, macaroni, and baked beans, Doug sure knows how to treat a lady right, as the ranger was teaching me how to play a card game called cribbage, another of my worries was put to bed. I had assumed all our gear left at Anderson Pass would remain there, a monument to our very failed expedition. Some day, I imagined, someone would pick up this very journal with your letters stuffed inside the back cover and piece together the partial love story of a dead dad and his little girl. As it turns out, fate decided to intervene in the form of a park ecological cleanup crew. So, thanks to an admirable and ambitious wilderness protection mentality, I was told our things would be waiting for us at the park's backcountry office. Mid-morning today, after a long and relaxing drive east along the park highway, I was able to pick them up. I fished the car keys from Franco's backpack and followed another ranger's directions to the meager hospital caring for my blizzard-battered companion. He was sound asleep when I entered the room. The on-duty nurse brought me the most comfortable chair she could find, and, except for a brief hiatus to eat, I've been here ever since. The hospital staff is keeping him sedated, but he did come to for a few hazy moments about an hour ago. It wasn't much. His eyelids fluttered as he offered a weak grin and gave my hand a reassuring squeeze. Then, before slipping back into his drug-induced oblivion, he whispered, You took me along because you thought you might need me. As it turns out, I am the one who needs you. I don't know if you were watching over me, Dad. I've always thought those ideas about the dead protecting their loved ones to be worth about as much as blockbuster stock is today. But in case you were watching over us, I want to say thanks. Not so much for taking care of me, but for taking care of the man who means the world to me. Love, your frostbitten little girl, Kate. June 26, 
2023. Dear Dad, I've always found the expression, a taste of one's own medicine, to be a little strange. After all, medicine heals and helps. Yet, the phrase carries with it a decidedly negative connotation. Regardless of my personal opinions about the saying, I guess it's the right one to describe what happened today. Everything began with the words that woke me up this morning. Hello, Kate, Franco murmured softly. I jolted awake on my chair bed. For a split second, I didn't remember where I was or how I'd gotten there. When the events of the previous days flooded into my consciousness, I jerked about and found Franco's coffee-bean eyes staring up at me. His color had returned, and except for a bandage on his head and hair matted from his long sleep, he appeared strong and healthy. Whatever spirit overtook me in that moment, I don't know. Maybe it was the resurgence of unimaginable relief. Maybe it was something else. But every restraint upon my heart broke free in that hospital room as I threw myself over him and pressed my lips against his. Franco returned the impromptu kiss. My intense longing for him was reciprocated by his for me. At once a waterfall began foaming inside my chest, and I felt as if everything might come bursting out all at once. Heat filled my cheeks, my fingers, my ears, my lips. It's possible I began to glow. And it all lasted for about a second. Then Franco broke the connection. He averted his eyes and turned his face away from me. I backed off immediately and slumped into my chair. What is it? Franco, what's wrong? I asked, confused, perhaps even a bit panicked over this abrupt change. I think, Franco replied, that I should bring you back to Anchorage as soon as they let me leave here. Then you can go to Washington without me and... I will stay in Alaska. That rushing waterfall remained in my chest, only now it was drowning me. But, huh? I don't get it, I stuttered. Frustration rose from my breast and into my throat. Wasn't that your plan anyway? To stay longer in Alaska? Why are you being so weird? I just... I do not think you and I should be together, he said. I think it is best if we go our separate ways from here. Look, I retorted angrily. I'm sorry I kissed you just now. I guess I was relieved to see you conscious again. I spent almost a whole day certain you were going to die. I thought we were both going to die. It's been an emotional few days. That's all. Franco sighed. No, that is not all. The hell are you talking about? I am sorry, he said sheepishly. I should not have done this, but I... I read from your book. Your words to your father. Egregious burning betrayal ripped through my gut. 
teeth clenched, I growled. That's personal, Franco. Between me and my dad. Then, adding a barb, or between me and no one, I guess, since he's dead. Yes, I know. But when I woke up in that tent, you were gone. I had no memory of what happened. I likewise believed you were probably dead and that I would soon be joining you. I held my stubborn gaze. No way was I giving him the satisfaction of softening up for even a moment. It does not matter why I read your book, he continued. What matters is that I know how you feel about me, and I cannot let myself feel that way about you. The June 20th Entry Shit. Up to the moment of Franco's reminder, I'd forgotten how I stupidly shared that juicy little tidbit with you. I always knew being too open with my feelings would bite me in the ass sooner or later. Now I have proof. But I wasn't ready to give up. Not without a fight. Well, why can't you? I challenged, recalling his long emails. How he'd pulled me close to himself that first clear morning in Denali, and, most recently, the obvious desire in the initial moment of our kiss. Could I really have been so foolish as to imagine love and longing where there had, in fact, been none at all? Some things are too difficult for explanation, Franco replied, risking a glance in my direction. So please, do not make me try. The time has come for us to walk our separate paths. I stood, turned to leave, turned back again to face Franco. Stinging tears blurred his image as, bitterly, I whispered, You told me you needed me. Last night, when you woke up, you said you were the one who needs me. That was nothing? Franco's brow furrowed, and he again averted his gaze from mine. He wanted to say something, to explain himself, but the words eluded him. He eventually shook his head, defeated, and replied, All I can say is that I am sorry, Kate. It would not be right. As if yanked backward through time, I teleported back to January when Andrew had been sitting where I find myself now. He had been in love with me, yet I rejected him for reasons of my own I couldn't explain. Did he hurt like I hurt now? Had his guts and innards and vital organs been ripped out, thrown into a blender, and whipped into an emotional smoothie? Because that's the consistency of mine right this very moment. The bitter medicine I fed Andrew six months ago is precisely what I taste now. No longer am I standing in a hospital room in Healy. I'm in Anchorage, all alone in my hotel room, still smelling the diesel fumes of the ancient bus that brought me here. Franco's image hovers in the darkness above my eyes, even as he lies in a hospital bed 200 miles away. I'm so angry, so dejected, so sad, and so, so 
damn tired. Yet sleep will not come. The specter of Franco scares it off every time it comes near. Part of me wants to quit your game. The pain it has caused me, that you have caused me, overshadows and overwhelms the joy and wonder of it. You've led me to some amazing places and incredible people, sure. But before you showed up again, Dad, life was so much stabler and far less chaotic. I want it done. Over. Finished. So then, why do I have a flight booked to Seattle? I leave early tomorrow afternoon. In my confusion and bitterness, I can't make sense of anything right now. Not even my own decisions. I guess I'm forcing myself to act in the faith that pleasant shores are still waiting over the horizon, even when the foaming waters around me are so turbulent and the night so deeply dark. Like you did, I guess I have to press onward. What other choice do I really have? I'm too close to the finish line to end the race now. Besides, I really can't sink any lower than this, so one more letter won't hurt. Right? Love, your heart-shattered little girl, Kate.